Leftovers Season 3, Episode 2, Don't Be Ridiculous, is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, probably about to start getting ridiculous here on Post Show Recaps. It's the Leftovers Podcast, recapping Episode 2 of Season 3. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler here with Antonio Mazzaro, also known by our, by our stage names, the Lonely Donkey King and Special Contagious. No, that's not our Wu-Tang name. No, it's not, but I think we should probably at some point figure out what those are. That's the, so the, the episode is credited in the writing to The Lonely Donkey King and Special Contagious. Yes, way to sound white. You got it. Uh, did, I get it did I get it right? Is that right? Or you, it makes, you're making it sound like I got it wrong. You got the, yeah, you got the, uh, yeah, you got, got it right. The, I got the right. Uh, according to, uh, to mess.be, which has a Wu-Tang name generator, Damon Lindelof is actually Violent Warrior. So we might be using a different name generator over here. Seems possible. Seems possible. Seems possible. But any in any event, uh, I was hoping that maybe the, the W that Nora had tattooed on her arm was actually for Wiggler because I was feeling jealous that she was heading to Kentucky clearly to see you in this episode, Antonio. <laughs> who says that didn't happen? You got to watch for the deleted scenes. We know who Nora Kirst's favorite Leftovers podcaster is, and it's clearly you. Yes, that's me, Antonio Mazzaro, and you are Josh Wiggler. Thanks for introducing us at the top, Josh. All right, my pleasure introducing us, Antonio. All right, so we've got some leftovers to talk about. It's enough ridiculousness at this point. There's plenty of ridiculousness in this episode of The Leftovers to talk through. Uh, this is the first of two podcasts that we will be doing this week about The Leftovers. We're doing two shows every week for this final season of the Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada drama on HBO. Uh, this is our Sunday night kind of quick take where we're giving you our just fast reactions to what we saw. And then later in the week, we're going to be taking your feedback. We do our feedback show where we go really in-depth about the episode. You can get your feedback into us a couple of different ways. One way is just on the Twitter bots. Uh, I'm at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. We also have a feedback form, postshowrecaps.com slash feedback, as well as an email address now, Antonio. Leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. Uh, you can send an email through there, and we will get to see all of your pretty, pretty words about this show. You guys have been very eloquent and great theorizing going on so far through one episode. I can't wait to see what you guys have for episode two. Yeah, really fantastic stuff. And the spigots are working, Josh. All the feedback has been rolling in on a pretty much nonstop basis with thoughts and questions about even just the one episode we had of The Leftovers. Now that we've got two, and especially, Josh, with this ending, I have a feeling it's going to be incessant. And Josh, why did they have to mention dogs at the end of this episode? <laughs> Dogs are really triggering for Antonio right now, so we'll try and not dogs, talk about Dogs them. are my dog whistle at I know. this point. <laughs> we'll try and not talk about the dogs too, too much, but there's some dog stuff to talk about here. Before we talk about everything else, one last order of business. We would love it if you guys subscribe to the podcast if you have not already done so. Uh, quick links to do that, postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes gets you to our podcast feed through iTunes. Any other podcatcher, go to postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers, and you'll be able to get what we're doing your star ratings, your honest reviews, all of that super helpful as we're trying to get noticed here on the iTunes charts. How are we doing in that regard, Antonio? Do you have any updates? We were good. We were in the top five in the TV and film section five, uh, after the first top five, baby, after the premiere. So very thankful for that. But please do continue to leave your reviews if you haven't done so yet. We, Josh, we even got a review from Faraway Australia. Oh, my God. That's great. Yeah, I've heard from a couple of people from Australia. So that's great. As The Leftovers itself moves into Australia, our podcast's uh, audience is extending into Australia as well. So that's very good. We love hearing from you guys. So please do write in. Please leave your reviews. Don't be perfect strangers. Be uh, perfect friends with us. Oh, I see what you did there. That was very clever. That was fairly clever. Yeah, you know, I, like I that. coming into this podcast, Antonio, and I, you know, at this point, we're going to start talking about the episode full tilt spoilers. Uh, I, I really do wish that I was more of a perfect strangers guy because I'm, I'm sure there's just a lot of great stuff that happened in this episode that's a little over my millennial head. Yeah, I feel like it does predate you just a little bit, just obviously, a little bit, just a touch, just a couple years. Obviously, if we walk back step by step, we could probably get to the point where uh, you were not sitting on just uh, no cards that you had a full house and you could play here. But uh, oh my I do god, think... that was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really, a really gross thing that you did. Blair, Blair, yes. I apologize for that. No, yeah, it, there is literally a connection to Perfect Strangers here, Josh. Multiple ones. We have a season two credit sequence. Do you think this is sticking around for the whole season? No. You mean that we're going to have the Perfect Strangers theme at the start of every single episode of the final season of The Leftovers? I really don't think so. But then again, didn't we say on our feedback show, like, they're never going to do anything, like, as hokey as the sitcom opening from Mr. Robot. And I think it was still several shades away from how, you know, knowingly hokey that was on Mr. Robot. Uh, but 
still, I would not have guessed that they would have just pulled from a completely different show, let alone Perfect Strangers, which uh, The Leftovers has lovingly been taking shots at since the very beginning of the show, uh, to have that song pulled in here to kick us off. I don't know. Uh, I'll miss Let the Mystery Be, but for that one gag alone, it was pretty unexpected and pretty delightful. It was. And I, I'm liking this idea that The Leftovers Season 3 and its final season is just going headlong into the absurd in many ways with these openings. Last week, we didn't get credits. We got the cold open with the Millerists and the Great Disappointment. This week, we get the credits from Season 2, the imagery from Season 2, not the imagery from Season 1. But in the place of that, in, in, in the Let the Mystery Be song from the Season 2 credits, we get the Perfect Strangers theme song, Josh. So I wonder, like, would it have would have paired better with like a completely different opening title sequence? So that like now we're left to wonder: is this going to be it for the rest of the season, or do you like that they contrast it with the the very memorable opening uh, credit sequence from season two? Just no music, none of the same music. I liked it. I mean, and I, and I feel like it gives them a lot of opportunity to play with that if they want to continue to do that throughout the rest of the season. We should add that we had we discussed this a little bit on our feedback show, and the uh, <laughs> we've had feedback and people asking about this sort of thing. So it's fun to see that people are interested in the sorts of things that the show is delivering. I would be fascinated to know, and we're going to do our feedback show, as you mentioned, later this week. I'd be fascinated to know what listener expectations are for the credit sequence going forward are we going to see the same season two imagery with different music are we going to see the season one imagery return with different music are we going to see something completely absurd i mean if we're going to australia next episode josh what is the australian version of perfect strangers i don't know uh summer heights high Summer Heights, yes, Jonah. Uh, sorry, miss. Yeah, I don't know. Are we, are we Fuck you, get, Antonio. Are we going to get into, uh, maybe we'll get into a little Crocodile Dundee of some sort. Uh, uh, everyone in Australia right alienating now. Alienating our us. newfound Australian yes. fan base very quickly. <laughs> yes. Uh, pick, uh, there, there are a lot of Australian influences in this season of The Leftovers, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but they were discussed in the overview of the season. And I wonder if they will get into any of those, uh, those cultural touchstones, which are not the, the, the horrible ones. They're not horrible, but are not the broad ones that we've mentioned and are instead uh, much better or, or more accurate representations of things that are more meaningful to the Australian audiences. Like Picnic at Hanging Rock is one of the big things I think that was an influence on this season. And I mean to rewatch that film. I haven't seen it in 20 years, I think, uh, since uh, since I've really first watched it. So I'm curious to rewatch that in light of knowing that they were watching it in the Leftovers writer's room because they were also watching, as we know, as we talked a little bit about Mr. Robot. And Mr. Robot, as you said, memorably did this uh, this season two credits thing with the uh, Miller Boyette uh, sitcom opening style song and everything like that. So I wonder if they're going to lean into some of the things that were influencing them that weren't Mr. Robot, uh, like perhaps Picnic and Hanging Rock. So I'm, I'm looking forward to rewatching that in a week or two here uh, and seeing if there are connections to the leftovers. It will be it will be. It will be very funny uh, if they continue to play funny or jokes or have fun with these sorts of things or not. Yeah. So this is, a, I thought, a really great episode. It's a leftover, so obviously it's going to be pretty good at this point. Um, but we love the Nora Durst, or the Nora Cursed, as she would like to say, you know, preemptively stealing a hashtag that you and I should have dreamed up many moons ago. Uh, anytime it's her on screen, anytime we're getting a whole lot of Carrie Coon in this show, it's usually going to be a pretty good time. Uh, and for the second episode of this final season to be so heavily centered on Nora until basically the last 10 minutes or so was really, really wonderful. And I thought also a really great extension of the premiere's final sequence, which obviously ends on this quote-unquote Sarah character, who is at least played by Carrie Coon and is very likely the same person, is very likely Nora just several years later, or who the hell really knows what's going on there. But I think to go from that final image in the premiere to now spending basically an entire hour with that character, I thought was a great choice. Very smooth move. Very smooth transition here in the second episode of The Leftovers season I agree. Yeah, yeah. And we, we know The Leftovers really eats its lunch in these points view episodes they've done a fantastic job with it in fact probably arguably the first great episode of the leftovers is the Nora Durst centric guest uh, which I believe is season one episode six 
And they're also, before that is a good point of view episode with Matt, uh, Two Boats in a Helicopter, that we've talked about, which is season one, episode three. But The Leftovers has always done really good work with these mostly point of view centric episodes from one character. And the Nora ones are always a highlight. And this was no exception. Uh, fantastic character, but also fantastic to really delve into her psyche and see the things that are going on there. Because... There are a lot of comparisons, I think, to what's happening with Kevin and Kevin's own struggle. And they, they sometimes confront it directly when they talk about it. Uh, and there's some really funny lines there. And I think Nora is hiding a lot about how she feels about certain things. I mean, you don't walk around half jokingly while you're almost weeping, calling yourself Nora cursed without somewhat believing it. And I think it's interesting that Nora can believe that she's special, that there is something about her that maybe is problematic, that everything she touches is cursed or that even if it's a touchscreen or, but she can't believe it about Kevin, that there might be something special about Kevin, that it's hokum when it's about Kevin, but when it's about her, maybe it's true. And I think that having that spelled out and getting there with Nora Durst is really important as we continue you on through this season, especially if, as we speculated a lot on our feedback show, we are going to go heavily into this Kevinism thing. And it is going to be a storyline that plays a part not only in the current timeline of the series with everything that's going on with the book of Kevin, but also in the later timeline uh, with whatever's happening, as you said, who the hell knows, with Sarah slash Nora in the future. So I think drawing those parallels here early on in the season is really vital. And I think doing the deep dive of Nora is really rewarding in that respect. Well, it's interesting if we're looking at this season as sort of like the beginning of a new belief system that is built around Kevin and the book of Kevin. And he is sort of like the messianic figure at the at the heart of this thing. And it's season two. It's in the Lens episode where it's put out there in fairly explicit terms that Nora Durst might be possessed by basically the Antichrist, right? Right. They're the demon Azrael in some kind of earthbound form. Right. Yeah. And, you know, she if, if she's now at a place here in this episode, if you're arguing that she's starting to believe her hype, that there's something about her. But if that hype is that she's Nora cursed instead of Nora Durst, is that sort of the conflict that we're starting to build here in season three? As much as, you know, any time the chips are down and Kevin and Nora get to be pretty honest about where they are. Clearly, Nora is still keeping some things to herself here, and I would imagine that Kevin is doing the same in that final scene where she walks in on him with the bag over his head, and then she gets the call from Australia about going to Australia, rather, and clearly she's holding that back, the, like, the true reasons of why she's going right now. But there is a sense of honesty between these two characters, and yet I think in terms of the larger fabric of what this is spiritually, are they being pitted diametrically against each other? Yeah, I and I don't know. It, they, the funny thing is, they shouldn't be diametrically against each other, right? As I was saying, they're, they should be able to find that common ground because if she's a person who believes that she is a lens, or there, if you recall lens in the Demon Azrael as we were talking about, she gets this phone call and she finally answers it and she starts talking and she has read a little bit of the Scientific American stuff and the guy we see in this episode, her friend, Freddie Rumson, Mr. Brevity, yes. uh, he is talking to her about it and says, our people thought there was something to it and we're going to add it to the questionnaire. She is a little worried, I think that there may be something to that. And then the demon Azrael stuff comes up and she laughs it off. But there is this part of Nora Durst that believes that maybe she is the cause of the problems that have occurred in her life. And maybe she is the problem. Maybe she is the source of these things. And so for her to believe that and not believe that Kevin could be a positive force like that, it doesn't seem like those two things jive. They should be on the same page about these things. But yet it seems like, like John Murphy, Nora maybe is unwilling to believe in the mystical or in the magical. And it makes sense because she's sort of a ghostbuster, right? Like this is her job that she goes out there and can holy balls be busted is just an incredible line yeah can holy balls be busted exactly they hate it when i do this she's slamming pictures of dead bodies josh in the middle of the town square that was pretty she... hardcore hardcore af yeah like ridiculous right like but that's the lengths that nora durst is willing to go to to say to people this is hokum this is bogus this is bullcrap like this isn't real stuff 
And yet when it's in her own life, she maybe is triggered even by things that happen to us all the time. Throughout this podcast, Josh, I've been struggling to get my, my email to open up so I can look up my notes. And yet I'm not thinking that I'm cursed and there's something wrong with me. Uh, she snaps when the touch screens aren't working and when the card readers aren't working. Something that we, it, we probably can't go throughout our daily lives without this. And yet she's assigning maybe a little bit more value to it. And she's getting triggered a little bit, thinking maybe she's the problem. So there are these things that are happening in her life and she's willing to assign them some value and to push back against that because maybe I think she's unwilling to admit it to herself publicly, uh, the feelings that she holds privately. That's always the great thing about how Carrie Coon plays this character. There's surface level Nora Durst that's relating to the world and she's often very harsh uh she often does things that are very in your face uh she's throwing rocks through windows she's slamming dead body picks up around town but there's also the the Nora Durst that she keeps close to the vest and close to the heart and she doesn't that, that's behind that rough exterior that Carrie Coon shows all of these levels of Nora Durst is phenomenal and she's such a great actress in this role but I don't know that Nora and Durst, Nora, Nora Durst and Kevin are on the level about this, as you're saying. Like, I don't know that they're totally on the same page because, as you point out, she is keeping some of it back. And so I don't know throughout this season, if we are talking about that, how we're going to track where Nora is with regard to the Kevin thing. She herself is asking that in this episode. We're on the same page about this, right? Like, we don't think that you're the savior, right? And when she sees Kevin with the bag over his head, she remembers, I'm sure, hey, listen, I used to hire hookers to shoot me because I wanted to feel so I get it I do get it and so there are these things that they have so deeply in common and they've had these great scenes in the series in the past where they're comparing notes and and she's like I hire prostitutes to shoot me and Kevin's like I kill dogs like they're comparing notes about the horrible things that they've done in the wake of the departure but it seems like that might be a strength of their relationship and yet it also feels like this Kevinism thing might be pulling them apart so it's really deep and really I just think phenomenally well played by Carrie Coon, all the things that are going on there. Yeah, I think one of the great lines uh, that she has in the episode, and it's kind of just like a throwaway in the moment, she says, if we can't have a sense of humor about you being the Messiah, we're going to have a problem. Uh, And it's a very funny line, and it's just kind of an aside, but I think it sort of speaks to the idea behind Nora Durst as a character. It's like, she's very cynical. uh, And like, if you can't acknowledge that what you're professing here to be like this greater power isn't some you know at least some sized portion of bullshit uh you know we're really going to have an issue here like we can have a sense of humor about it as long as we both acknowledge that this is not a real thing so she's not a real true believer you don't get the sense but i don't know maybe maybe things are starting to change in this episode a pretty big plot development if we're to take it you know seriously if we're to take it at face value and I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. Hopefully we'll have a better grasp on it, maybe through talking with you now, Antonio, but certainly later in the week. But there's now a potential scientific explanation for how you can visit the – or not visit, but just go to the place where the people departed to. Like there's some subatomic explanation that I could barely follow along with, Antonio. Well, what's funny about that, right, is there there is at least theoretically one of those things. It could also be that people are just – vaporizing themselves uh, like literally walking into a microwave right. and being which gone. is Nora's great line which is like you know I don't know if you're in on this or if you're being played Mark Lynn Baker but if you're if you're getting you know zapped you're not going to the magical place you're being incinerated right Mark Lynn Baker just a celebrity spokesman <laughs> is that right I don't know much don't about know. the Mark Lynn Baker you got it you got to fill me in I just feel like maybe he's a celebrity spokesman for uh, for what's going on here. Like they they're like whatever this this gig is or whatever this thing is. They're like we know who we should get for this. We should get Mark Lynn Baker. A he's a good actor, but B he's a little bit convincing. He's a celebrity story, just like anything else. You get a celebrity pitch man for your product, Josh. You're already well ahead of the eight ball. If this is all that these people, these scientists could afford was Mark Lynn Baker, like he's the celebrity endorsement, I don't think I trust this product. Well, in the world of The Leftovers, though, Mark Lynn Baker has attained some new level of notoriety, Still, if you'll recall. yeah, but like only within like certain circles, you got to imagine, right? Like he can't be an A-lister now. 
I don't know. It's interesting because the he's in a hotel room, like taking secret shadow meetings about this kind of stuff. He's not an A-lister. He's getting new suits made, Josh. This is A-list material. I guess. <laughs> I guess that's right. Custom tailored. He kind of looked like uh, an international assassin to me. This guy. Uh, I think you talk in a hotel and putting on a new suit. There's a little bit of something to that. I also noticed it didn't look like he was wearing shoes. So it was really funny to see a man in a suit with no shoes. It reminded me of uh, Abbey Road, the uh, album crossing yes. cover, and I believe in Abbey Road, the person who wearing a, a suit with no shoes uh, is meant to represent a dead body. I believe it's Paul McCartney. Uh, and it, that was part of the whole Paul is dead mystique. Josh, that was Lindelofing BC. That was like Lindelofing before Lindelof. That was B- BDL? <laughs> yes, BDL. That was uh, a BDL. Not to be confused with the BBA. Yes, indeed. Although some people were confused about the BBA. That's Dean, of course. R.I.P. Yes. R.I.P. R.I.P. BBA. R.I.P. BBA, yes. Uh, no, but there, Mark Lynn Baker in the world of the leftovers actually the cast of Perfect Strangers has attained some level of very much larger notoriety because ostensibly the entire cast of Perfect Strangers departed on the at the sudden departure. However, as we saw in season two, Marklin Baker actually faked his departure. We didn't really know why until we got this great monologue from Marklin Baker himself, uh, which in the world of the leftovers, he says that he disappeared because he, like Nora Durst, was a one in four. How could the other three go and I didn't? Do you know what the odds of that are, he says to her. And of course she does because the exact same thing has happened to her family. So she knows right away what the number is yeah and so they have a lot in common there but i think the we're meant to believe that in the world of the leftovers because of that because a the whole cast departed and they became part of the celebrity montage at the in memoriam but b because it actually ended up being faked and here was mark lynn baker that there's this other element to it so i do think as we see a statue of gary Busey in jarden the celebrities who are associated with the departure have taken on a bigger meaning and i think that that's also the case for mark lynn baker yeah was this resonant for you if you were a perfect strangers guy to see Marklin Baker in this very different dramatic context? I haven't seen him in much other than Perfect Strangers. I did watch a lot of Perfect Strangers when I was younger. Uh, it's a, it was a very, very big sitcom. I'm sure if we looked at the actual raw numbers of Perfect Strangers, you're talking about probably tens of millions of people watching that show. TV was a very different uh, thing back then, where there were only really three channels, and people were all watching the same shows, and a show could have something like eight or nine million viewers and be considered a, not a successful show. So I'm sure... Tens of millions of people watch Perfect Strangers, but I don't know Mark Lynn Baker from much else. I'm not saying that he's not a successful actor. My understanding is he's had a very robust career, stage screen and or stage and screen. But I just I don't know everything he's done. I did see him at some point in a production of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. That was probably the only other thing that I saw him in was a touring production. So that was really it, I believe. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Perfect Strangers fans, on the feedback show. I'd love to get your your takes on how all of this played out. But I think uh, what was especially you know compelling about it is this idea that's now floated out there nora at least in this scene with mark lynn baker says that this idea of being able to go to the place where people departed to is probably bullshit uh these people are probably just being incinerated they're not actually going on a one-way ticket trip to you know wherever the great beyond is they're just being eaten alive by some sort of subatomic black hole or are they actually going to the other side and i'm sure in true leftovers form we'll probably never get a definitive answer Flash forward to three episodes from now where we get the definitive answer. Uh, but it's certainly... It's certainly <laughs> Mark that time code. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly the question that's on the show right now. And I think at least for a series that is facing its end point very, very soon, rapidly approaching, what do you think about this as being a new topic that's on the show of like, you can stay here... Or you can take the risk. You can, you know, as as Mark Lynn Baker says, like I'm ready to take some effing control of my life. You could do that. You know, you don't want to kill yourself, but you can take the risk of potentially dying or potentially going over to the other side. I think that this is pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, and the, they underscore that the people that are doing this are passing IQ tests. I note that they're not passing sanity tests uh, or emotional tests. They're passing an IQ test to show that they're smart enough to understand what's going on, but nothing else. And they're holding up the newspapers to show what day they're making their statements, and they're making their statements, and there are all these people that have done this thing. I mean, you're talking over 100 people have done this. So you're, you're, this company is either a company of mass murderers uh, or it's, uh, it's a company that has actually developed some 
some technology that is shipping people off. And I think that it could it really could go either way, I suppose. I feel like the world of the leftovers, as you're just saying, is not one that we're going to get a clear answer on. Uh, but it is fascinating that possibly we could. I mean, who knows? Maybe Nora jumps into this box, Josh. She disappears. Uh, and then we have the other timeline with Sarah Durst in another world. And there are these messages. Uh, if One of the things that I did uh, today when I was trying to find out when the uh, time of the departure was in Mapleton, right after this episode before we began recording, is I went back and watched the pilot and tried to figure out in their remembrance day, did they say a time? And we'll get into explaining exactly why when we talk about the last scene in the episode. But one of the things I noticed is people are releasing messages into the sky. Uh, and I wonder, are those messages the messages that Sarah Durst gets? You can see a world where Sarah Durst is Nora having crossed over, and she's reading messages that the people are sending from the other side. Who knows? Uh, that would be a mind blower for certain. Uh, it's certainly possible in the world of the leftovers that we'll do that. That would seem to be definitive confirmation of some sort of different realm. And yet what Marklin Baker was spewing there seemed like a perfectly scientific explanation. I'm no scientist. It sounded a lot like the rays that created the Incredible Hulk were in play there, at yes. least uh, on some level. So maybe Nora well, you will become like, the Incredible yeah, Hulk. You wouldn't like Nora when she's angry. That's the that's the thing, Josh. That's the secret. She's always angry. That's right. Uh, she's angry enough to to slam her arm in a door. Uh, she's angry enough to to do a lot of things to drive to Eminence, Kentucky. But no, you could see a world where this show, The Leftovers, does somehow confirm not through faith, but through some hokum of science that Marklin Baker spews here uh, that Nora Durst is alive in the future uh, or in a different world. Like maybe they're they just departed to a different world. Uh, and I'm not talking about the 80s sitcom. Josh yeah I I really I really you know what I really <laughs> like Hardison you know what I really like the idea of I love this you will never see it because there's just not enough time but like to go like into like contact territory and now that there's, there's like some sort of science mission that Nora Durst is going to be leading the expedition into this other side and being the first person who goes over there like I want to follow Carrie Coon in that role like I want to see that drama play out and I doubt that we're going to get it at that level uh, but I do think that the very strong possibility of narratively, what's the thrust of this season? Like, what's the plot stuff we're going to be waiting through here soon? I really think that we we may have you know struck a geyser here in this episode with this really being the fuel that gets us forward in the show of like Nora's going to Australia possibly to take these people up on their thing so that she can go and be with her kids again uh, and be with Aaron and Jeremy, whose names I shall never forget at this point, uh, though I had forgotten them before this episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're right. You, you know, and, and Kevin's going with her. And so there could be massive conflict that comes from that of Kevin trying to stop her and maybe going through in her place, and then we lose Kevin through something like that. I think that this is going to be a major deal on the show. Like, you got to imagine now at this point, we're going to see somebody walk through this thing. Yeah, I think so. And as I said, go back and watch if you're listening and you, and you have the, ac the ability to do so. Go back and watch that pilot. I, I didn't get a chance to really sink it, like, take it all in. I just saw that it was going on when I was trying to figure out the time. And there are people releasing messages with birds, so I don't know what's going on there. Are those the messages that end up in the other place? How do birds go through the thing? Uh, I'd love it if people if people get any more information about this or we can hear more about this on our feedback show. But I really don't know. I, I, I don't know that that's what's going on and if Nora is going to step into the box and then what we're seeing from Sarah Durst is her in that other world or not. I, 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 like I'm inclined you, to say no. I'm inclined to say no to that. But I'm inclined know. to say no as well uh, but I, I think that would fit within the shows maybe not science maybe science maybe not kind of thing because the Mark Lynn explanation of all of it the Mark Lynn Baker explanation of all of it does have some scientific basis he lists out the specific types of radiation he talks about how it was measured on the day of the departure in certain areas he talks about how it dissipates and how you have to recreate it you can see that intelligent people are buying into this but are they buying into it because they're so desperate for answers they're literally willing to step into a microwave and incinerate themselves or are they buying into it because they're 
thinking maybe the world ended at some point anyway, so may as well go for it. Like, what do I have to lose? And there's something very cultish to the video testimonials. Like, there's something very like, oh yes, you know, like you get like they're saying the exact same thing. My wife was pointing this out to me. She was watching the episode with me, and it was just like there was something very like I don't know, uh, just very like ritualistic about the fact that they're just repeating the same words, kind of droning on. And I think maybe it's the fact that Nora even raised the specter of incineration as the alternative to stepping through this uh, Stargate and you know, like going to the other side and hanging out with your family, plus James Spader and Kurt Russell. Uh, so I, I just think maybe there's a little bit of, of that element of it. it's just like kind of kind of sinister on that level. Oh, no. Was James Spader a sudden departure? He may have been. Oh, no. Yeah. The, but the worst part of this is, right, it's described as a mobile unit. Is this just going to be a Winnebago? <laughs> yeah, you don't know. It's not impossible. It sounds like you're just going to step into a Winnebago and, like, zap yourself to death. And it's that a, sounds an RV. horrible. Yeah. But you're right. There is that cult element to it. I wrote down uh, Hail Bob Comet. I forget what those people were called, but that Apple-like guy uh, who they thought the Comet's arrival uh, was their signal to depart. So they just mass suicided. And right. this is not that different. They're not all doing it at the same time, but they are all doing it, apparently. So there is that weird cult element to this. And, yeah, if some hundred people have done this, 119 people have killed themselves uh then that i'm sorry by any a horse by any other name that's a mass suicide by a cult right like it's not happening at the same time but it's having the same purpose and effect the same these people who all believe this one crazy thing have all killed themselves and you can see in the context of this episode getting into the other scenes why nora durst might find that this is some kind of meaningful thing she goes to kentucky and finds josh we get the answer to whatever happened to baby lily right yeah and as we had speculated we, i don't think we speculated we'd get this in episode two uh but christine lily's mother did come back looking for her daughter and nora apparently took like one look in her eyes and saw a mother who was missing her child she's like yep this is yours so go for it uh, so that was the end of Baby Lily, who apparently is no longer even Baby Lily. I don't think we know what her name is anymore. Her name's Christine Jr. Is obviously. that Christine Jr.? Here, hang <laughs> on. Let me put Baby Lily into the Wu-Tang, uh, Wu-Tang name generator, which is at uh, mess.be. Expert specialist is, uh, is the Wu-Tang name for Baby Lily. Yes, that's X-P-E-R-T. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Baby Lily, is X, her new name is X-Pert Specialist, uh, which is very difficult because you get called last when they're doing roll call. It's nobody, nobody likes that. But, yeah, Christine has, has basically said, I want my child back. And I don't know. I, I sort of feel like finders keepers maybe should be in play here. But I guess in the wake of the departure, Nora was feeling somewhat generous and couldn't possibly deny someone else their child, considering that Nora herself had been denied her children by the great depart by the sudden departure so uh, you can understand why Nora would give her back but Lily doesn't even remember Nora and this is a major major blow for Nora for sure this was after the Marklin Baker thing she did take the phone but we don't 100% know where her head was at with this I think just from a Nora she also kind of just had to take the phone considering yeah. hers had been you know thrown into the toilet by what a dick that Marklin by a, Baker by a perfect stranger <laughs> what a jerk this guy like what's he doing and he says it's all anything that matters is in the cloud and i'm like i'm wondering does he know like the specific resonance of that statement to the person he just said it to like yeah i know all my things are in the cloud mark like that's great thanks a lot yeah exactly no, that's a funny point uh yeah. so i don't know where all of this is going one thing that that struck me um is could could this all be leading to like a confrontation of Kevin's belief system. If we're talking about Kevinism and the book of Kevin that's being built around him. And if he's starting to wonder that maybe that's true and Nora is going to, you know, clearly on the show already, she's talking about how like, clearly this is malarkey. Like we're both on the same page about that. Um, but if Nora is starting to believe in this this possible magic box that's going to reunite with her with her family and maybe there is the possibility of incineration but she has to believe that if she goes through she has the chance to see them again or at the very least she just gets to go out on her own terms if that's like her belief system if that's what she truly believes are we possibly heading to like some sort of crossroads where Kevin has to get to a place of acceptance on Nora's beliefs and Nora, by the end of the series, in whatever sort of 
future world we're living in where Sarah Durst is a thing, if we're assuming that's in our real world, is she going to have to confront coming to terms with Kevin's belief system? I wonder if there's some sort of intersection there that might not happen at the exact same moment of like they both have acceptance at the same time. But I wonder if thematically that's that's somewhere we're going where really it's it's just a a, a matter of finding your answer. And I think that that is such the, the, you know, that's the message of this show in terms of how to read it. So many plot points, so many questions have so many different possible resolutions and answers that I think that that could thematically just be where this show is going and an acceptance of the fact that we all have different answers to the same questions. Yeah, I, I, I love that, especially in this day and age, right, where people are siloing, we're siloing ourselves into our own particular viewpoints and not taking the time to consider the viewpoints of others or the validity therein. Uh, I think that that's a, actually a timely message. And I, I'm not coming at that from any political angle. I'm, I'm simply saying, like, that's a thing that is out there right now, that there are people who simply write other people off by virtue of something they did or something they believe instead of taking the time to really understand them. And this journey with Nora and Kevin, if we call it that, does seem to be a journey that includes some similar things, right? We talked about how when Kevin is uh, putting a bag on his head and doing what he's doing and Nora walks in, which, by the way, if there's ever a time to pretend you're cranking it, that's the time. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> like, that's oh, the time where you're like, you know what? This is actually what I'm doing. Like, like let me let me hide what I'm doing and pretend I'm doing something else. Uh, Nora is yeah, so, so cool with it. Like, Nora's <laughs> like, yo, Kevin, it's totally fine. Like, I totally get it. Like, we'd never have to talk about it. It's not a thing. And I mean, that's kind of like just like, of like in on first blush it's like wow Nora Durst you're pretty cool <laughs> you're pretty you're cool with a lot of freaky stuff like you're yeah. really in on whatever kinky Kevin is going on here but I think the the deeper truth and the sadder truth is Nora is in so much pain so much soul-wrenching agony and we did get the rare occasion to see her cry in this episode a few times yes uh you know in a private moment where she's uh, you know, you know, silently to us because we don't hear it, but clearly just like loudly weeping in the car as she's driving away from the the child that used to be named Lily, and also even cries a little bit in front of Tommy in this episode. I think she's got a howling pain inside of her that she is trying desperately to mask from Kevin, who's like her only grounding force in this life, because they really do get along so so well. But they get along so so well with a lot of a lot of important honesty and a lot of superficial honesty, but not like the full truth. Uh, and in in saying to Kevin, like, I'm not going to challenge you on what's going on here. Clearly, you're doing a thing. I think it's very much her being like, so don't challenge me on my stuff because I'm clearly doing a thing and I'm not down to talk about it with you or anybody else. Yeah, and the irony of that, or the interesting part of that, is that. As I was saying in the pilot, uh, right right after these children release these dove balloons with messages or names or wherever, the reading of the, the damned, the reading of the people that are gone, that's the first time Kevin really, as far as we know, sees Nora. And that's when she gives this speech that is representing to the town of Mapleton how strong she is and the things that she has dealt with and how they don't define, they do define her in terms of this is who she is, but they don't define the fact that she goes through life uh, a certain way. And then what we find out about Nora as we progress through season one is she's keeping a gun in her purse. She's hiring prostitutes to shoot her. All is not as it seems. She may have presented publicly the first time Kevin saw her as as she's giving that speech with this wonderful, strong face to the world. But there is a lot going on behind that face. And she maybe is questioning herself. I love Josh that when she's at her lowest ebb in this regard, she goes to see Erica. I love that. So here's Erica. Uh, Another... Another, you know, small mystery that was introduced in the season three premiere. It's like, okay, so everyone is hanging out and everyone is cool with each other and everyone seems to be just like pure family mode. But Erica ran away. When are we going to find out what happened? We were thinking it could have potentially been so nefarious that she had kidnapped Lily. Antonio like we, was, well we weren't thinking that let's put that on AJ mass you know, <laughs> but, well, you know the possibility of that even being out there we chewed on it a little bit like absolutely we, we, we yeah. talked about like could it could there have been a really dark turn for Erica especially after everything that happened with Evie in the finale and especially with everything in the th- in the season three premiere where it certainly seems uh it would be very hard to walk back that Evie is dead um and instead 
the Erica we get is bouncing on trampolines to the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, seems to be pretty happy. Seems to be doing okay. And seems to have some degree of closure with Evie. Because as she says to, to Nora, she says, I, I got to bury her. You know, like she knows what happened to Evie now. Right. And I think that she's able to have some peace through that. But also in the in the dialogue between Nora and Erica, who were not always very close. In fact, no. rather opposite that back in season two. They seem to be pretty tight here. Uh, and even Erica was saying, like, I'll, I would take the cast off of you. And Nora doesn't want to lie when she's asked outright, how did you break your arm? She says, I don't want to lie to you. These two are clearly tight now, which is cool. Very cool to see. Yeah, that is what I liked about it especially, which is that they were at opposite ends for a really long time. And that was when Evie was missing. And Nora wanted to put the kibosh, I think, to a certain extent on the fact that Evie wasn't a secondary departure. And if you think about it, there may have been some acceptance of that on Erica's part and that great scene in Lens when they're talking about this, that maybe it was her fault to a certain extent. Like if my daughter wasn't a secondary departure and this person who's an expert in it, she thinks that she wasn't. And there's a lot of negative energy coming off of her as a result of this. I don't know if you want to call it this Nora's jealousy toward Erica because her daughter didn't depart and because there is an explainable answer for it. Uh, Resentment. I don't know what it is in play in that scene that they play so fantastically well. But man, they hated each other. They threw rocks through each other's windows, Josh. Like they were at opposite poles for sure uh, over the stuff with Evie before. But now we see several years later, they're on the same page. And when Nora needs to get to a certain page and when she looks for answers, uh, all Erica can offer her is what you said, which is that she did get to bury Evie. She knows what happened. It seems like John is maybe on a different page than Erica with that, and maybe that's part of why they're not together anymore. Although they were already driving towards Splitsville in season two. Yes, which is another... That's just outside of Jarden, right? Yes, that's another location that we'll be visiting here in season three. Splitsville, Texas. It's a neighboring town, yeah. Uh, So I don't know, ultimately, if uh, what it it took in this time period. But yeah, this is a trampoline, Erica. And this is who Nora goes to when she really needs the the, the discussion of what's happening. And she really needs the emotional support. She goes to Erica. And I love that. I love seeing that. I love the echoes back from that. There's also echoes back with Tommy Garvey, Josh. We get another Nora and Tommy Tommy. Garvey scene on the bridge. Unbelievable, this guy. Well, listen. This freaking guy, Tommy Garvey, just rolling up and just like ripping. Forget this guy. Screw this guy. The word like every time Tommy Garvey is starting to to you know make a turn, and I'm starting to feel like this is an okay guy. He has to do something horrible to ruin everything. And just the way he was talking to Nora was no good. Well, I I don't want to take a hot button stance, but you put a police officer uniform on, you start acting like a police officer. Like he wow. comes up to the car and he's and he's he's like, "Oh, sorry, ma'am." Like he's just being a real jerk. And I'm it's TV trope land. Like we've seen that on TV shows, the jerk cop is like something that we've seen a million times. Uh, and so it's no shock that Tommy Garvey is uh, stepping right. We know from the first episode of the season that he's not the best cop. Like the Gary Busey guys, he was ready to throw hands with because there were some issues with the balloon. Uh, and Kevin quickly calmed down the scene by not being like that but seriously like Tommy Garvey's just going full full officer here and not in a good way not in the way that uh, I think good police officers would want to be portrayed in the TV trope bad cop way uh, we need a good cop if Tommy Garvey's playing bad cop I guess Kevin is good cop I'm trying to figure out exactly what Tommy was trying to do here. Clearly, he got the heads up from Christine that Nora came and saw Lillian. That was very weird. And so he's confronting her about this. But he's telling the story about when he found out that he was adopted and he spent 10 years trying to like chase down a birth father who didn't want him. What's the message he's trying to, to dig into Nora here? It seemed to me that he was saying it's for the best. Uh, I don't I don't know the, the the real jerky thing that Tommy did here. I think up until the end he was fine. But at the end, when he's like, I didn't leave Lily for you, nor I didn't even know you existed. I left her for my dad. Like, what a dick move. Like, that part is no good. But before that, Tommy's being vulnerable. And he's saying to Nora... Listen, like when I found when I was 10 or whatever, I found out that Kevin wasn't my real dad. They decided to tell me. And then I spent the next 10 years looking for acceptance from my actual biological father. And I wish I had never known. Uh, And I think Tommy, as a child of a situation like that, probably feels the same way about Lily. And that does seem to be his ultimate goal here is Lily's quote unquote 
best interest, having himself emerged from a very similar circumstance. He feels like he never should have known, so Lily shouldn't know either, and Nora should stay away from her. That's how it feels to me. Yeah. Uh, and he's probably right at this point. Like, I think it's just been like too complicated for that child to like know what's going on with Nora at that point. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I don't want to, you know, judge the situation. It's a tense situation. That's a difficult, difficult situation. These fictional characters have found themselves wrapped up in. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's why we're here, Josh. Uh, but yeah, this is you're right. It is a difficult situation. Uh, it is a sticky situation. But it, 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 Tommy Garvey's got multiple bodies on him at this point. Like, this is a guy who himself has issues. Uh, if we recall, the reason that he dropped out of college is because he saw people killing themselves uh, after the sudden departure, Butch and Sundance style. Uh, and he followed Holy Wayne around and killed people when Peter Burke was under attack in season one. Uh, he killed someone, the BBA, last episode, and sort of just seemed to shake it off. And see, he was, it was fine. NBD. He's like, yeah, don't worry, Dad. I've yeah. definitely done it before. <laughs> yeah, so this is not a guy who on the whole necessarily has it all together and yet as i said this is not the first time we've seen a scene on that bridge between nora and tommy garvey last season memorably uh, in the season finale when lily was taken by some woman uh, and in the woman was saying that's not your baby that's not your baby and taking her from nora uh, the woman laid the baby down on the ground uh, there were uh, the baby was baby lily was almost ready to be trampled nora threw her body over the baby and it seemed like but for the intervention of tommy garvey nora and lily would have been trampled at that point and so they did have a very memorable positive scene on that bridge and you can contrast to this where there is a lot more nuance going on here and as you said just a really kind of messy situation that these fictional characters have got themselves wrapped up in what did we say a lot of messy antics this season a lot of messy antics this is the season of messy antics on the leftovers um i'm trying to think of what we haven't covered before we close out of here obviously still a few things clearly everything that's going on with australia but before we turn our uh, attention to australia is there anything that's going on in jarden in st louis in the american in the stateside storyline this week is there anything from there that you want to talk through before we turn towards australia just a little the the elements of course of uh, of what was going on with Nora and the man on the pillar and that whole story of course, how RIP RIP pillar guy RIP pillar guy how we brought Brett Butler how we brought uh, how Nora displayed so much grace under fire in this episode <laughs> yes. uh, speaking of other sitcoms from the 80s how we brought uh, Brett Butler or the 90s uh, how we brought Brett Butler back into this story and we show that Matt is this operator that matt is doing things behind the scenes under the noses of people in town and matt plays a little fast and loose with what's a lie and what's not a lie i didn't lie i didn't lie uh matt sounds like adam klein in this version uh but i i do think that matt was uh playing a little bit loose with the truth uh he wants to say he didn't lie this isn't a congressional committee so he's probably going to get away with it but uh, Nora said, Matt, you've lied to me before. She tells the horrible story about when he lied when they were five. And he said, our parents aren't feeling any pain as they're dying in a fire because they're already in heaven. Uh, and Matt says they are, you know, but that's not the same thing. Matt. Like they weren't at the time. And I understand why you lie to a five year old in a situation like that. But you shouldn't be lying to your adult sister, Nora Durst. And I think you can tie it to the Australia thing if you want. And we can do that in a little bit here. But the fact that Matt is operating a little bit covertly and uh, behind the scenes, we know he's been building the Book of Kevin and Kevinism up here. Uh, we don't know exactly what that's done. We'll get into that, as I said, with the Australia part. But Matt is an operator. He's a little bit of an operator. We saw the sonic screwdriver stuff in season two right. uh, when he put himself up in those stocks. And that was all with Brett Butler. That was all part and parcel to his connection to her. Once that connection was formed, it seems like he has been a constant connection for them. Uh, and there is a relationship there. So a lot of what Matt has been doing in Jarden and in Miracle seems to have been happening behind the scenes or sort of covertly. Uh, he tells Kevin that he didn't make the flyers, for example. Is that true? Did he have Michael print them so therefore he didn't make them? Yeah, it wouldn't be a lie. lie. I didn't lie. I exactly. didn't lie. I didn't make them. Hashtag Matt logic. Hashtag Matt logic. Yes. Hashtag Matt antics. Like this is ultimately what he's been doing since the beginning of this series. At the beginning of the series, he's he's trolling the trolls. He's out there putting people's wanted posters up of the departed and saying these were bad people. He's publishing a newsletter that gets him targeted and attacked. And 
he's not always doing what is ultimately the quote-unquote good thing. He's sometimes doing the thing that he thinks is right, and that doesn't make it good. And here I like that this little microcosm example of it with the Pillar Man. Uh, we see Matt ultimately helping them create this narrative that the pillar man is holy and that he was a departure and not having a problem, at least on some level, letting that be the story that's out there. And I think that's fascinating in light of the fact that this is your Peter or this is your prophet of Kevinism. This is your gospel of Matt of Kevinism. He's the one creating this thing and he has no problem bending the truth a little bit when it supports his narrative. The really dark part of that, of course, is what happens with Mary in season two and when people are willing to think that maybe Matt did something very untoward and that Mary actually never did wake up. These are the questions we've been asking ourselves about Matt all along. And as it seems like he's going to be a key figure in this rise of Kevinism, I thought that this was a, a good Matt scene here uh, and his role in the Pillar Guy stuff was important. An to intentional track. Matt scene. An intentional Matt scene. And not yeah. a Matt Sarah scene. This was a Matt Norris scene, Josh. Yeah, this is an intentional Matt scene. Yes. Uh, well, I think, I think we can, we can kind of launch from that into the Australian stuff. Uh, because you and I were talking a little bit offline before we came on here. I think you and I are in agreement that what we see in this in this final act of the episode, you got to blame Matt for some of it, probably. Most likely, and that's absolutely really why I wanted to create that through line. Because, first of all, we got a lot of questions, and I'm sure people are asking a lot of questions about when exactly this final sequence takes place. If you go back and rewatch it, there is that weather, the joking weather report, the apocalypse is coming on TV, and they say it's going to be the seven-year anniversary of October 15th, which is not October 14th. So that's placing us in the same time period of everything else that we're seeing, except for that final scene from the premiere so far, and clearly, obviously, the stuff that's happening in the prologue of the first episode. Right. It is, because even though the dates don't match, even though October the 14th is the Mapleton, Jarden sudden departure, uh, October the 15th would be the Australian version of the sudden departure because of the time zone difference. Uh, in my work, I finally discovered that on Laurie Garvey's ultrasound moment in season one, we do actually see the time of the departure in Mapleton, and it's around 2.30 in the afternoon, give or take a few minutes. I don't remember the exact time. But if that's the case, Australia is about 14 hours ahead, and so that would put it well into the October 15th date. So they're not playing fast and loose with any time here. This is seven years from the great from the sudden departure. That's all it is. This is seven years. So this is the same timeline as our current timeline. Uh, and, yet, and yet we're seeing people in Australia confronting a police officer and saying, are you Kevin? Right. And then trying to test the fact that they ardently believe that this man, jardently believe that this man <laughs> is Kevin. Stop and, the podcast. That's it. We're not getting any better than jardently. That's it. And they, and they, and they, you know, drown him because the, the woman who's in charge of this, her name is Grace. Did I get that right? Did yeah. I, did I, did I mark that down? Gra her her name is Grace Underfire. No, her Gra name is Gra Grace Playford. Grace Playford. Grace, yeah. Grace Playford. Uh, and she, is very you know fervently believing that this is this is a Kevin, and so she drowns him to test him because you would assume that if she thinks it's our Kevin that he's not going to die because things don't kill this guy, and how would she know that in the present if there's only one book of Kevin Antonio unless uh somebody in Australia has at least caught the Cliff Notes version of the book of Kevin. Sure seems like it, right? Because who emerges? A little bit of a game of phone tag, a little bit of telephone going oh, on. Oh, a little game of phones. That's a different podcast. Yes. Yes, yeah. I like Game of Thrones. <laughs> I know you do. That's uh, it's literally your life. Many times, uh, a lot of the time, that is something that you uh, you are heavily wrapped up in the Game of Thrones. Uh, but yes, this is uh, we're playing one right now. This is this is ultimately yeah. This is Kevin Senior, right? Like this is Kevin Senior who emerges from that house and says, "Ladies, what are you doing?" Uh, this is Kevin Senior in our current timeline. The reason we know these ladies know about Kevinism. First of all, she asks, "Are you Kevin? You're the police chief, and all of that." She does test. Uh, are you a witch? He's a witch you know she dumps him into the water whatever but she quotes i think directly from the book of kevin josh she says at some point and he looked at them and raised his hand but they did not wave in response and so he touched the stone to his chest and jumped into the water and if that is not the scene where kevin tries to kill himself when evie and the girls are faking their departure i don't know what it is that has to be yeah. that right 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like an exaggerated description of that when we saw how that actually played out. Um, when we saw Kevin with, you know, the weight and he's about to throw himself in and he makes eye contact with Evie. That's back in season two. Right. Is that, is that, what, which episode do we see that moment play out in? It's That's, season two, it, episode nine. It's right at the end. It's right before Kevin yeah. wakes up because then right. he emerges from the dirt and he says to Michael, like, your sister didn't depart. I need to talk to your dad. Right. So, I mean, like, he told that story to Michael then. Yes. And, and you know, Michael has been helping to write this book, and so Matt would find that out. Uh, and as you really, you know, uh, connected, you know, even really well for me, Matt and, and uh, Kevin Sr. are decently connected. Like, they have a relationship that goes back a ways. So you can imagine Matt talking to Kevin Sr. Uh, across the world and saying, I think your son is very special, and Kevin Sr. being like, oh, yeah, he definitely is. Let's collaborate on some you know communications about this and him hearing the exaggerated story that Matt is going to tell him based on what Michael had told Matt based on what Kevin had told Michael in that game of telephone you can imagine that story becoming more and more epic and who knows what these people in Australia think about this Kevin Garvey why they think that Kevin Garvey is already in Australia and they need to be you know drowning a guy to prove it that I'm not so sure. It, does it just so happen that if you're a police officer named Kevin, you should be looking over your shoulder at this point forevermore because you're just <laughs> going to be taken down by a posse of Australian chicks yeah. who are going to just drown you in the nearest lake? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why they're coming after that guy, but clearly I think that the Book of Kevin, though only one exists, the legend already exists, and the legacy and the far-reaching reputation it's as far from you know miracle texas to wherever the hell australia these people are in right now so it's got roots and it's they're pretty far at this point they they are and you can imagine that kevin garvey senior has maybe been laying the foundation for this over these three years as much as matt has been right we as you alluded to they do have this long relationship and that in part involves kevin uh, the reverend matt in the first episode in that pilot uh, he basically is saying, tell your dad he's off the hook. You're off the hook, too. Tell your dad he's off the hook. And Kevin Sr. at that time is in a mental hospital, uh, who, having walked through the streets naked. We don't ultimately know what set him off. And at some point when he frees himself from the sanitarium or whatever it is, when he walks out and he gets Jill out of the refrigerator that she's stuck in and saves her life and ends up back at their house and he's digging around and doing all these things, uh, the person who brings Kevin Jr. back to Kevin Sr., the person who brings them together, the person who Kevin Sr. goes to when he needs to lay low, it's Matt. It's Matt, and Matt has probably heard Kevin Sr.'s ramblings from around this time about how Kevin Jr. is special and about how there is something going on with Kevin Jr. and that there is this magical or spiritual thing happening with him that Kevin Sr. feels. There are other untold elements of this relationship. There was a bottle of empty peanut butter with a wad of cash in it that Kevin Sr. left for Matt, that Matt comes right. to pick up, that he takes to the casino and gambles with to get the money to buy his church back in season one, episode three. There is a deep history between these two characters. It definitely stands to reason that that would be part of the, the if you're going to go to somebody and say, if you're Matt, I think Kevin Garvey Jr. is special, is maybe a messiah, that's one of the first phone calls you make. The guy who's been saying there's something special about him all along. So it stands to reason that a, a crazy person like Kevin Garvey Sr. would be doing this. We have no idea what Kevin Garvey Sr. was doing in International Assassin, for example, when he said he was on something called God's Tongue and he was in Perth in a hotel room that was exactly the same as Kevin's. Was he going his own, undergoing his own ritual? It seems right. like next episode we're going to get a lot more about Kevin Garvey. Can't wait for that. Kevin Garvey Sr. Can't wait for that. But there's always been this fascinating thing with Sr. and Jr., in the Garveys at their best, the flashback to before the sudden departure, Kevin Garvey Sr. very specifically tells Kevin Jr., you aren't special, that this is it. This is enough. Like, what you have right now, this is enough. Don't think that you are meant for something more. This is it. And yet in that timeline of season one, he's telling them the whole time, like, they need you. There are things going on. I tried to keep you out of it, but I can't. You're needed. You're special. So who the hell knows, Josh? Like, Kevin Sr. is the exact guy who would go nuts and build this Kevinism up. And by the way, you're right. That quote from the lady about raising his hand to them and them not waving in response, 
that isn't actually what we see happen when we see this with Kevin. There is no wave. So you can see that Kevinism, the story, has already embellished the way that that story exactly. went down. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, like, you could totally, you know, that is a very common tale. You know, a very common tale right. of just like the, 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 you know, the, it grew longer in the telling. You know, yes. it, it, it just became grander and grander. Right. Uh, so, and that would be very thematically consistent as well with a lot of what we've been seeing in the leftovers and certainly a lot of what we've been spitballing as possibilities here for the final season. Yeah. It's the telephone game. It's the game of phones, Josh. Like, this is what's happening. Like, this is, uh, this is ultimately somebody And tells isn't somebody... that even, you know, that's kind of how, how Kevin. Kevin and you know how junior and senior interact in international uh, assassin. I don't remember if it's if the, if they call each other involved with the TV screen communication. Is there a phone involved in that as well as the TV? It's a, there's a remote involved for sure, right. uh, and the batteries and everything. The issues there, but yeah, it's on the TV. It is like a video call. We don't really know how that plays out, but it's a similar principle because yes. like there's some confused messaging that's going on there as well. Yeah, there's a lot of distortion that's happening in that call. So it's the game of phones. That's what's happening here. Yeah, the Game of Phones is definitely on. So, I don't know. I'm excited. Uh, sucks for, ke- uh, you know, Kangaroo Kevin, if that's what we want to call, <laughs> you know, Captain Kangaroo Kevin down there. Oh, no, that's Chief Kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, that's Chief Kangaroo. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know what these people were thinking that this guy was Kevin and why they think Kevin Garvey or, you know, whichever Kevin. Unless they're looking for Kevin Sr., and then Kevin Sr. showing up at the end is like, I believe you guys are looking for me. Thanks for coming like, to my house and killing a cop. You know, who knows? <laughs> we, we, we have no idea. I mean, what is nice is it does seem like the answers are just a few days away uh, or at least a week away at this point. I think episode three does seem poised to dive into what's going on in Australia and with Kevin Sr. That should be really, really exciting stuff. Uh, and just even with the pacing of the season so far, we're only two episodes in. And we didn't have to wait any longer than that to find out where Erica is. What happened to Lily? Uh, good ratio of tossing out questions and lobbing down answers, and also sometimes the answers being more interesting questions. Uh, I think all of that is great so far. Loving the pace of this final season, two episodes deep so far. I am too, very much so. And I'm, I'm loving, and, and we'll, I'm sure, get into a lot of this in the feedback show, but I'm loving how much they back-reference, and they're back-referencing the previous seasons. Uh, it is a very difficult task on a show like The Leftovers, where the seasons really have been no... Uh, like like a novel uh, in many ways. Uh, they're standing on their own. They're telling these stories. They're making things from previous seasons matter. They're doing a fantastic job, not of answering questions from previous seasons, but of showing those questions in a different light and of letting the information presented in those previous seasons perhaps impact some of its Lindelofing of course we're probably Lindelofing with the uh, balloon white doves with messages being released into the air uh, and white doves carrying messages to Sarah Durst in the future timeline if, or whatever timeline that is but there is a lot of it that is emotional or that is thematic that is connected and that that's the stuff with senior and junior I'm having a great time tracing those I'm loving for example that Matt is close to the pillar guy because we know that the pillar guy in season two is sending a letter to the this guy, David Burton, in Australia. Is David Burton this guy who we saw as the as the bridge keeper or as the karaoke MC in International Assassin? We still don't really know if that's the same guy, but we know the story of David Burton was he couldn't die, that he emerged from a cave and he thought he was alive. So if Pillar Guy knew about David Burton and Matt was tight with Pillar Guy and his family, then maybe Matt has put Kevin Sr. in touch with David Burton and maybe David Burton is part of Kevinism and we're going to see those things connect. So the fact that they're playing on the relationships of people like Matt and Kevin Sr., and they're doing it in subtle ways, I think is really brilliant. And who knows? The thing about the Bible, of course, is that, especially the Gospels of Jesus, the New Testament, is that there are four different writers. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with different perspectives. Certain stories come up in one Gospel, but don't come up in others. So who is going to tell the ultimate story of Kevin Jr. in Kevinism? Is Kevin Sr.'s version slightly different from Matt's? Is he sending these crazy four female horsewomen of the apocalypse uh, out to kill cops. Like I like to see a leftover spinoff movie, by the way, where some like Australian version of the FBI is investigating the deaths of mysterious. How come, how come 10 police officers named Kevin have been murdered? (laughs) We got to draw the, we got to figure this out. Like if, if, if this becomes a procedural, Josh, I'm not going to be too happy about it is all I'm saying. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I'm not entirely sure what was going on with all of that, but it was fun. It was a it was a cool little ending for the for the episode. Didn't see it coming at all. What I'm what I'm liking structurally is like these sort of out of context prologues or epilogues to episodes that seem to be happening, where it's mostly a centric episode. Where last week the premiere was pretty heavily focused on Kevin and through Kevin's eyes for the most part. This week is through Nora, but there's also these sort of book ending stories that take place as well. I love that. I think it's great. Structurally, I'm really liking this final season quite a bit. Me too. And like I said, I love that stuff is happening off screen and you, you have to put the, the buttons together or you have to kind of figure it out a little bit. Like, for example, Nora says at one point, are you going to dig him up or should I? Like, that is a question that she asks regarding Dead Pillar Guy. And later we see that she develops a picture of Dead Pillar Guy. So she dug him up. <laughs> and that's ridiculous, uh, but it happened. And this is the level that Nora Durst, that's the lengths Nora Durst is willing to go to. And that's happening off screen, and you just have to put it together a little bit. I like that the show is trusting the viewers enough to make these connections. I like that the show is trusting us enough to make these jumps. I don't like, Josh, that the show is continuing to talk about dogs. You hate the dogs. What what bothered you about the dogs this week? Well, we have the uh, the police uh, discussion here in the Australian, uh, in Captain Kevin. There's a uh, sick dog. You're not going to have any empathy for a sick dog? Well, listen, if that's all it is, sometimes a sick dog is just a sick dog. Yeah, like that is, uh, that is fine with me if there's a sick dog. I don't want people saying, oh, does the fact that he mentioned that his dog uh, might have been like a, a spouse or a significant other to him uh, mean that dogs are like people in this world and uh, that dogs are going to take over in seven days and if you don't the problem with the reason chief kevin died is because he wasn't uh and i'm not making fun of everybody but this is what the show is doing to people people are leaning heavy in on the dog of it all and a shout out to one of our great friends josh uh humby uh umberto says he's with me on the dog stuff let's not talk about it all right well you know we're gonna talk about kinda, it we're gonna keep we're talking gonna, about we're it. gonna talk about it because you know the, about it. there's dogs on the show and sometimes they need to be discussed all right we're gonna keep talking about it there's dogs in the tub too josh Listen, also, not for nothing, I'm not the guy who's bringing up the dogs. That's okay? a fair point. That's a fair you point. You know, you're bringing up the dogs. It's like, you know, you're doing the thing where, like, you're putting on the bulletproof vest and asking me to shoot you. And I feel like I'm making no money off of it. I was going to say, in that example, <laughs> what, what is your occupation, sir? <laughs> Let's not what, uh, what clothes did you put on this morning when you opened your, uh, your, your chest of drawers? Let's not discuss that. <laughs> Instead, how about we discuss hashtags as we close out here? You want to go Game of Phones, did you like? I like Jardently uh, as well. <laughs> Jardently. Certainly was good. Intentional Matt scene. Oh, I Intentional had, uh, Matt scene is one of the most brilliant right, things you've ever Game said. Game of Phones seems like an easy hashtag that probably a bunch of people have done. So why don't we go with that or Jardently? I'm, I'm happy either way. Sounds good. Um, and we will be back to do a much deeper dive on this episode midweek here, hopefully around Wednesday or Thursday. We'll get that up for you guys. And we will take your feedback and answer your questions for that show. So please uh, rewatch the episode. Rewatch anything that you want. Uh, don't rewatch it and ask a crazy thing. Uh, send us stories about dogs that you think are relevant to this show. Whatever don't you, do that. Don't well, do that. you know, do that or don't do it. But whatever you want to send us uh, for feedback, we will compile it. We will put together the best show we possibly can, answering your thoughts, theories, and questions uh, regarding next week's uh, episode before we see it uh, regarding this week's episode after we've seen it all of those things are in play josh how can they get their feedback to us feedback can be sent a few ways you can tweet us at round howard is i at ac mazzaro is he uh slash feedback is a feedback form you can use leftovers at postshowrecaps.com is our email address so any one of those ways will work comment section on our show page as well up at postshowrecaps.com all of that's going to be good. Subscribe to what we're doing here on this podcast, postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes to get to us on iTunes for any other podcatcher, postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers. Antonio, anything that I've missed, or we'll just get to it on the feedback show. Josh, let's have a baby. Oh, my God. Uh, this Insert me laughing for like a solid minute in your face. Fair enough. Are you happy? I'm happy. Let's not have fun I'm up, happy. Josh. Okay. I'm happy. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you in a couple days. Bye. Nothing.